Today we're going to attempt to answer the question, do you need a teacher? And it's a loaded question. And I think first we probably need to answer or figure out what a teacher even is. And if we're asking, uh, do you need a teacher? Um, do you need a teacher for what? We should probably figure that out too. Yeah, we got this question a couple weeks ago and it kind of broke us. Um, it sounds so innocent. Like, do you need a teacher? Yes or no? Should be yes so or no. Why? Yeah. Right. Um, but it starts messing with your head after a while. And I'm at the point where I hardly even know what a teacher is anymore. Uh, right. So let's... is it is a teacher like the, the person that's in charge of the classroom? Or is it your friend describing something from a textbook? Um is yeah. it a textbook? Does that count as a teacher? Is the person you see on YouTube explaining music theory, are they a teacher? Uh, right. Is the article you read somewhere? Right. Yeah. So I think it's, it's worth, in my mind, separating out the idea of explaining something with a teacher. In, we conflate the two things, and maybe we should, but... In my mind, the concept of a teacher is a pretty big concept. You know, if somebody's in front of a, in front of a classroom, you know, say in high school, they are probably going to spend a decent amount of their time explaining things up on a whiteboard, you know, talking to the class and drawing things out. Like that's part of it, but it's only a a narrow part because they also have to do classroom management, they have to deal with behavioral problems, they have to plan, they have to lay out curriculum, they have to deal with administration. There's like a million things that that person has to do uh, that go well beyond just them being up there on a whiteboard explaining things. Um, the so way they're they almost trying, they, they are pursuing your knowledge at the same time that you are. Uh, they're after sort of the same thing there yeah there's at least more of a mentor role in there than just someone explaining something right yeah is that what you mean because yeah i mean they are they're interactive they're they're not just yes yes although uh, like a person on youtube say you uh i guess i mean you're considered a teacher although you're not technically interactive um you're not interacting with the students right i mean nobody called me an explainer they call me a teacher, right? right? right. Yeah. Like that's how yeah. we use the word, but it's, it is different. And I'll tell you this from much firsthand experience on, on YouTube, there is this ultimate fundamental limitation uh, when it comes to me putting out a video, trying to explain a topic where I have to make assumptions about what somebody knows for me to explain anything. You just, you have to, you know, if I'm going to explain what a seventh chord is, I have to decide, okay, do I need to explain the entire concept of a chord? Do I need to explain, uh, music in general, how there's different notes? Does this person speak English? Have they played a piano before? Are they playing a guitar? Do they visualize things completely differently? Like there's a million things that go into, okay, what exactly do I include in this video? And how, how fast should it be? How quickly do I move through this concept? Because that can be a huge 
factor in terms of how familiar are they? Is this completely brand new to them? Have they watched 15 other videos on the same thing and they just need to hear it laid out a little differently? You are, it can be almost paralyzing trying to decide how do I do this? What, right. how do I, and the answer is that you can't. You have to pick something and make your best guess and hope that you title things correctly and set up expectations correctly to where most people going into it do know the things that you've assumed that they know, but you can't. And it's funny, sometimes I would do a video like this and I would see two comments back to back. One was like, man, you could have explained so much more. This was so quick. You know, you should have gone in depth here and gone in depth there. Um, and then somebody else is going, whoa, this was way over my head. I can't believe you thought that I would know this. Like, you're a bad teacher. You didn't, you, you teach it like somebody right. already knows it. You're like, look, guys, I can't, I can't make you both happy. You just have to make assumptions. Um, and when you are in that passive explainer mode, where I have some information, I'm going to transmit it to somebody else. That's just a limitation that you cannot get around ever. I, I, I don't see any way around it. Uh, when you're in person, which we've both done a fair share of teaching in person, that right. limitation is gone. You get to sit there and talk to the person and you can say the, you know, the very first thing you say, you can ask them or better than asking, you can just sit there and like try to read their face on whether or not they understand it. Well, I, I wouldn't say the limitation is gone. It's that part of the mm. limitation has been lifted and, and the rest is now up to your uh, intuition on who that person is and trying right. to read them. And that's probably what makes you a good teacher or bad teacher is your ability to read the person and be able to see what they need. Yes. Um, yeah. 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 Like I said, that's that's the biggest issue you face if you are if you don't know who exactly you're talking to. But if you do and you're a good teacher, um, your biggest concern should be to try to overcome that and be able to figure out exactly where a person's at. What do they know? What do they not know? How do you pace things correctly for them? You know, and you're constantly two way dialoguing with them. You know, you, you say something, you ask them a question about it or, you know, try to feel out. Did they understand it? How well did they understand it? You're looking at facial expressions and body language and everything, trying to make sure that every little piece of information you give them is the correct one. All right. So, so far we have basically two types of teachers. And that is the, the one in person and the one not in person. I guess so. And, and by not in person, I mean, we could be talking about a book that you bought. You know, somebody wrote this right. book. They don't know who's going to buy it. They have no way of dialoguing with you. Uh, it could be a course that you watch online or take online, you know, in including that. I think that method includes anywhere where you aren't getting a dialogue with the student. Right. But then, I've, of course, there's a huge range of even if you are getting a dialogue, how much dialogue does that uh, teacher have 30 students, uh, right. a thousand students, or is it just one on one? Right. And then how much time? And so it. Yeah. Yeah. It gets blurred, right? Like if you talk right. about a, a teacher with 30 people in a class, how diverse is that class? How much can they actually accommodate, you know, the upper end and the lower end of people's experience and what they know? I mean, a student can ask a question and they can respond. So they are able to address something, but it's nowhere near the end of what you get with a one-on-one -on -one teacher. But it's also not as bad as that purely passive, you're watching a video type of experience. So there's 
really this huge spectrum between there. Uh, okay, so that kind of answers, well, a, a little bit. It just touches on the, the uh, question of what is a teacher. Um, now, what about do you need a teacher? It depends on who you are. Um, it, it depends on a lot the, of things. The, right, so who is the student? Um, and, and what makes them able to learn with any teacher or without a teacher? Yeah. What kind of different students have you encountered? And, and which ones are successful versus, <laughs> versus which ones are complete failures? That's a good, um, that's a good question. I will say this. I... When I was teaching music a lot, at one on one, I mean, there were there was a spectrum of students, and on on one end of the spectrum, sometimes you would get somebody who came in, kid, adult, didn't matter, and they would go, "All right, I'm here. What do you want me to do?" Uh, I had some. This actually happened in adults more frequently than kids, but uh, one of the first things I would usually do when somebody walked in who was brand new, they're usually nervous, you know, new place, new experience, teacher, or, you know, whatever. Uh, I would always start by asking them a lot of questions that I knew that they knew the answer to. Just stupid stuff like, oh, when did you get your guitar? Uh, how, where'd you go to get it? How old are you? Stupid stuff like that. Where, just to build their confidence? Yeah, just, just to, yeah, because they, they're walking into a very strange new situation and they're worried about a lot of things. And if you just give them like little t-ball things of what's your name, they tell you your name and you're like, how long you had your guitar? When did you get it? You know, where is it? That kind of stuff where they get asked a question and they're like, oh, they just doing that actually gets them into a rhythm of it's okay to ask questions and I'm going to know the answer. And it, it kind of creates this environment of they feel okay about having that two-way dialogue. Anyway, that's, that's one of the first things I would do. And I had this one kid who was petrified, just so nervous about being there. And I'm like, this is fine. I know what to do. I, I can get, get something going with this kid. But his mom is standing in the doorway. And I asked so him, you're like, petrified. No, I'm, I don't No, I'm not. Okay. I'm fine. I was scared at first. But after a few years of this, you kind of get it down. Um, but I asked him a question, like, when did you get your guitar? And I, I'm trying to do this. I'm trying to get the kid to talk to me in like this dialogue. And the mom's like, last Christmas. Like, okay, um, do you like it? He doesn't like it. And like, lady, you're killing my ability to like get this kid to even talk to me. Um, because I don't know, some parrots are stupid. But anyway, right. <laughs> forget how I got onto that. Um, oh, okay. There would be a type of student sometimes that would come in, like I said, kid, adult, didn't matter. Say, oh, when did you get your guitar? Oh, last Christmas, you know, a year ago. Like, oh, okay, cool. What have you... What have you tried to do with it? You know, have you, have you tried to play any songs? Did you look up any guitar taps? I'm like, oh, no, no, I, I didn't want to touch it. You know, I didn't have a teacher. I didn't want to like, I'd hear this one all the time. You know, I didn't want to pick up any bad habits. Um, right. Right. Um, and I go, ugh, all right. Uh, well, I, I want you to play your guitar at home. I, got, I knew that we were kind of screwed at that point because they just had that mentality that's very hard to break out of. Um, but that type of person would come to me as this expert figure and say, what should I do? You tell me what to do. I'll follow your instructions uh, and you know, make me a good player. And you, I assume you had this kind of thing happen oh, too. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it, it was, 
it was so foreign to me because that is not how I attacked uh, guitar and and music. I was just so like dumbfounded when when that would happen. Yeah. It's like, wait, you didn't want to develop bad habits. That's the worst, <laughs> the worst habit you have already yeah, developed. Yeah. Not I just, playing I didn't is know a what, very bad habit. Yeah, and I was so confused by that. I didn't know what to do. Um, yeah. because I, I can't just make them. Right. I, I don't know. I was I was really confused by that when I first encountered it. Um, but yes, I, I would get those people. Yeah. Pretty often. Yeah. I remember having people on the other end of the spectrum where say I gave them something to work on. Like, okay, here's a song. If you, you know, work on this this week and we'll look at it next week. Um, and they come back the next week and they're like, I'm so sorry. I was going to work on what you gave me, but then like I heard this Metallica solo and I just got so excited about it. And that's all I've been playing all week. I just, I can't, I can't stop. I feel terrible. And I'm like, no <laughs> let's take that and throw it away or burn it let's talk about this metallica solo that you've spent 30 hours this week trying to learn uh i think in that situation people have the wrong concept of what a teacher is i guess or or maybe just the limitations of what a teacher can do if right. you're trying to learn to play music the person pushing you into learning music is you 100 percent. a teacher is there as a guide you know hopefully i can answer questions for you and if you're doing something wrong i can point it out maybe you weren't able to see that uh, help you figure out stuff that you were stuck on but you know the more out of the way i can be you know the the better or the happier i am with with that situation the idea that you just show up and a teacher is your your everything your you know, life coach, your motivator, your all of that is just it doesn't work. I mean, I've watched it a thousand times over. Those people sucked always. I mean, 10 years later, they're still not very good. Yeah, it's like they're uh, like a super fast. Uh, what are they called? A drag racing cars. And it, a really good student is just like full speed ahead. And the teacher when they they see the car start veering off the road they just kind of like push it back onto the road yeah. and then just you know try to keep them from crashing mm -hmm. i think that's what a good teacher does um yeah it just it tries to you try to keep the student going full speed ahead yeah as uh, opposed to the other student who's like still sitting in the car going push me yeah like, push me okay <laughs> I, I can't do that kid yeah um okay let we're talking about the spectrum that a teacher can operate on right like it on the one hand you're on this just purely one directional explaining thing and there are serious limitations to what you can do there the other hand if you're if you're in a good scenario and you're you're a good teacher and you have a good student people sometimes don't recognize how vitally important it is to be a good student and i don't just mean that you're smart and you're you know disciplined but you know you understand the limitations of a teacher and you constantly give a teacher feedback on, I understand this. I don't understand that. Like if you can get a really good one-on-one -on -one dialogue situation going, then you can get a lot of value out of having a one-on-one -on -one teacher. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I think also um, some, some people don't understand that they might know things better than the teacher. That yeah, they may not have enough confidence 
or they might they may not understand that their brain is also a useful device in <laughs> in this pursuit of learning yeah um it because it, it takes a little while to to realize that um it, so so they always feel especially adults they always feel that they're wrong or that they're doing it the wrong way mm-hmm. um and it's really hard for them to just start trying things um and and maybe after a little while you start realizing that you have something to offer or or that your problem solving abilities are actually useful um yeah can does that i make sense yeah uh can i can i tell the car story here yeah 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 i was about to say tell the okay. car story all right all right so this was that moment for me where where this idea clicked um so i was younger it was like 17 ish maybe 18 uh, I had bought a 1989 Chevy Camaro and this, I, the car was 20 years old when I bought it. So it was, it was an old piece of junk and still is. Um, but I was, you know, a kid and excited and like, ah, cool. It's okay. I'll, I'll fix it. I'll, you know, work on it. All this stuff that was just exciting to me. And I was learning how to be a mechanic sort of, I had taken care of some stuff, but I had this problem where Uh, the check engine light would come on and the car would start running rough. And, you know, I got a little code reader. I plugged into the car and it let me check the code and I looked it up in the book and it said uh, math sensor failure, whatever. And the math sensor is the mass airflow sensor. It just sits in the front of the engine. It's just a sensor. Um, And it said it failed. I'm like, okay, that's easy. I'll go to AutoZone, buy a new sensor, stick it in, really easy. Uh, And the car ran okay for another two weeks. And then the same thing happened again. Engine light comes on, car starts to run rough. Like, crap. Looked up the code, same code, you know, bad math sensor. Uh, and so I, I don't know, I, I pulled it out, replaced it again, spent another 80 bucks on a new new thing. And I'm like, man, I, I don't know what the deal is. Same thing, two weeks later, got messed up again. I'm like, okay, it's not the math sensor. I've been through three of them. There's something else going on here. And I've got a, you know, meter out. I'm checking wiring. I'm trying to figure out what else is in that circuit. What else could cause it to throw this error never could figure it out so eventually i'm like well okay i'm 17 i'm a kid i don't actually know what i'm doing i'm just reading the you know the manual that i bought from autozone uh i gotta take it to somebody who actually knows what they're doing so i took it to the dealer and i got there and i said look i've been through three math sensors you know i i I, I know about engine codes. I checked the thing. I know that there's an engine code saying it's a bad math sensor, but it's not that. I've been through three of them. Something else is going on. They're like, okay, yeah, cool. Well, we got it. You know, we'll, we'll check it out. So I leave and I don't know what the deal is, but I made an appointment for nine and they got it done at like seven in the evening. Actually, I, I didn't have a car, so I walked to the library and I read Catcher in the Rye cover to cover in one sitting while I was waiting for them to diagnose my car. I don't know what the deal is with whatever. Anyway, I got back. I'm already in a bad mood. Uh, and the guy comes back and he's like, okay, we're all done. Like, cool. Okay. What, what was it? Uh, you know, I'm excited to have this expert who works for the dealer having figured this out for me. And he goes, it's your math sensor. <laughs> I'm like, no, it's not. I've been through three of them. That's not it. That's exactly the thing that I told you it wasn't. That's the only thing on the car that I know works. And he's like, nah, man, I, I got the meter out. I checked everything. It's definitely what it is. There's nothing else. You know, it's 
it's the math sensor. You probably just got three bad sensors. I'm like, three bad sensors, there's no way. And he's like, look, we can replace it for you. It's going to be 600 bucks because we only do OEM parts. We don't do that cheap, you know, AutoZone stuff like you got. I'm like, okay. Uh, plus labor. But, you know, I'm sure that'll take care of it for you. I'm like, forget it. I pay them the however many hundred dollar diagnostic fee for nothing. Um, and I get it home. A week or so later, I, I had figured out that I could reset it. If, if I disconnected the battery of the car, it would reset the computer. I could reconnect it and it would run fine for a little while. I'm like, okay, well, I reset it. And then a couple weeks later, I'm working on the car. I don't know, walking around and doing something. And the car is running, sitting there idling. And I leaned up against it. And I heard the engine start running rough, just like what happens when the map sensor error thing shows up. I'm like, whoa, leaning on the bumper makes it run bad. That's interesting. So I shut the car off, disconnect the battery, reconnect it, start up again. And I'm like, oh, they're leaning on the bumper over and over. And then eventually it happens again. I'm like, whoa, okay, something to do with this. Pull the hood open, look at the wiring. And there's a, a fuse in between the map sensor and the, the engine computer. And the fuse was fine. I had checked that many times the fuse was not blown but the way the fuse sat inside its little socket somehow with just a little bit of pressure on the car or some kind of movement the little foot of the fuse would just barely disconnect from the socket it was in and then immediately reconnect and it would cause a, an open circuit and the computer would think that the map sensor was bad and it would send it into run crappy mode and all I had to do was just squeeze the thing back together and it worked from then on. And th that was when I realized that my idea of an expert was wrong. I, I'm still, this was many, many years ago, but I'm still irritated at that guy for being kind of dismissive of me saying, oh, this kid, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Sure, he replaced the mess or whatever. I mean, he, I specifically told him this is not the problem, and he still came back and said it wasn't. But what could he have really done? I mean, as irritated as I was, I mean, he can't, he can't spend his entire week trying to sort out this problem. It was a weird little problem that would have been hard to figure out, right? Yeah, well, I, I think... Well, when we're talking about that 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 self-driving force, I guess it's a pun because it's a car. Um, yeah. But uh, you started looking into this before you took it into the guy. If you hadn't done that, um, you would have ended up paying all of that money to have yeah. the car fixed. Just like a student going in to learn piano or whatever, they do the first thing the teacher says, and they may end up wasting a whole lot of time um, and never getting anywhere because they never started asking the questions and started uh, right. being inquisitive on their own. They would never know what's right or, or what's going in the right direction because they're the ones that know what the real problem is. Yeah. Um, yeah, and... The way I'm, I think about it, nobody could have figured out that problem but me. Because right, it's your problem. Yeah, I mean, maybe what I could have done is paid however many thousand dollars they wanted to replace the not broken sensor, and then two weeks later brought it in and said, "Look, you guys replaced the sensor; it's still messed up." And they charged me for some other stupid thing, and maybe five thousand dollars later, I finally get somebody who figures it out. But 
So technically, maybe they could have fixed it. But really, it's a weird problem. It was my car. I'm the only one who cares about it. You know, the dealer is not losing sleep over this. He's just like, well, whatever. Um, I had to be the one to fix that. It was subtle, it was weird, and it was my issue. And if I think about, let's say, playing guitar. Guitar has, it's a it's an odd instrument, especially something like classical guitar. Though it's, it's an issue everywhere. There are so many strange, very subtle little things that you do with your fingers, with your body, with your hands. Um, just the, the tiniest little, the way you relax one tiny muscle in your hand and, and you know, flex the other one and, and the control that you get, the exact little posture of your, your hands and wrists and everything. It influences so much of the way you play. Uh, and a teacher can't, I mean, it's so tiny, it's so subtle. A teacher can't see that. You know, they can say, you should use this finger here, you should use this finger there. They can help you with the big stuff, but those really tiny little things that are super vital to you developing skill at this instrument, they're your problems. You have to be the one to figure them out. I mean, the teacher can try to guide you, can try to point out big things like, look, you're, you don't seem very relaxed when you're playing this. It looks like you're holding a lot of tension in your hands, or it, it could be something as simple as the way you move your eyes on a piano, you know, moving them to the next hand position to quarter second faster can make all the difference. I mean, there's all these little things and teachers just can't get at that. That is, that is up to you and you alone. Uh, and if you're thinking that you can just show up to an expert, like I did with the car, well, that's a more literal example, but it's the same thing in music. You are going to find either that you don't make much progress. That's usually how it appears. Or if you look a little deeper, you will realize that there are just things that you have to figure out. You have to be the one driving at it, you know, thinking, why can't I do this quite right? Let me try this. Let me try that. Let me look at somebody else's hands and see what they're doing. And, you know, maybe there's some subtle difference there. Where do they put their eyes when they play? Where do I put my eyes when I play? How do I think about things in my head? I did a, a, a video on my channel about... Uh, memory and how there's these huge differences with just the way people memorize music you know visualizing where your hands are on the guitar is one thing but you can also picture the music in your head like a sheet music you can use auditory memory where you're remembering what something sounds like and there's massive massive differences in how well those different things work and it depends on your instrument it depends on a lot of things but it's hugely important and nobody knows what's going on inside your head but you the teacher has no idea how you're remembering music or even knows how to point that out to you. Yeah. <laughs> Any I, thoughts on that? <laughs> well, I was just enjoying it. Um, well, th this is a little different because it wasn't a teacher, but when I was learning or trying to learn, you know, how to draw and get into art and everything, um, I would have a lot of people make suggestions on what to do. And if I hadn't had a if I didn't have a good idea of where I wanted to go with it, I would have ended up doing them and I would have, that would have been a huge mistake. Um, I, so I would spend all this time just doing sketches and doing uh, practice stuff and people would look at it and say, oh, you need to sign up for this art show. You need to do this. You need to do that. Mm. And it seemed like, it, it may have seemed from the outside to be the right thing, but I kept saying no to them because I was pretty certain that what I was working towards was the, the right direction for me. Um, and if I had kept taking 
suggestions from other people and I did all of those things, it would have been a huge waste of time and it would have sent me off in the wrong direction. Um, it, it, I didn't have a teacher, but it could have been the same thing. A, a teacher could have suggested those same things. Right. Um, so it was that, that self, um, awareness, I guess, or, or that. Well, how do you think you knew that that wasn't the thing to do? Well, I didn't really. Um, I mean, you never, you never know until you've actually yeah. gotten to the, to the goal itself or until you've achieved the thing. You never really know. But, um, but I mean, if you're sitting there sketching, like you said, practicing, I mean, were you looking for something? Were you thinking, ah, oh, there's, I, I want this to be better in this particular way or. Yeah. What's I mean, there was, like this, brain there? there was like this rough idea of uh, a level of quality I was trying to get to. Um, but, and that's what I was aiming for and going for all of these other things just wouldn't have made sense. Um, and so it was my own driving force that, that yeah. got me there. Um, or that's still trying to take me to that spot. Uh, I haven't like achieved everything I wanted, but well, yeah, but um, I mean, you you made it this far by pushing yeah. yourself there, basically. Yeah, I was right. Um, after <laughs> like yeah. after four years of not being totally sure, but being sure enough to be able to say no to certain things. Yeah. Um, taking that chance on myself, um, I can now say I was right. <laughs> Um, I agree. Yeah, which is nice. Well but I, I've seen other students just not be able to do that. Um, they'll, yeah. they'll just do whatever the teacher says or do whatever what, whatever other people are suggesting because they think that these other people have like this higher power or this, mm -hmm. this all-knowing knowledge uh, that they just don't have. And so they just follow blindly whatever the teacher says. And, and they don't learn on their own because they assume they're starting a bad habit or they're just doing something wrong. And so they never go off on their own. They only ever follow what the teacher says or, or they don't learn anything until they're enrolled in college. And that to me is just the worst way to learn something. Mm -hmm. um, I, the, the learn the bad habit thing. I have heard that so many times as a teacher, uh, whatever. And that, I'm not going to say it's a myth exactly because, okay, yeah, you can, you can certainly develop bad habits and they, they can be hard to break, but the, the severity of that problem compared to the severity of the problem it causes, like people thinking that way is so massively out of scale that I just wish that we could erase that from everybody's memory on earth. The idea right. that I don't want to do something because I'll form a bad habit. I will tell you this, if you are trying to learn something, if you are trying to get better at playing piano, I assume art is the same, you are constantly reevaluating the way you approach it and the way you do it, and you're changing things. You, you assume from the start that I am not going to start out playing in the most optimal way. You know that. And so if right. you if you're working on a piece or an exercise, anything, and you're like, man, this isn't working, let me reevaluate the way I play. And you do that over and over and over. That should just be a part of the way you approach it. And the idea that you might get stuck, we're like, oh, I learned to play with my elbow and I can't break that habit, is just that's not how you approach something. It's not how you get good at something. You are always reevaluating what you do. If you're not, 
If you're thinking, oh, the way I learned this at the start, that's going to be how I do it forever. That's just the wrong mentality. All right. So we've been talking mostly in general terms. Yeah. What about you learning software engineering? I mean, specifically from when you started, you, you didn't really, you did not have a teacher, right? No. Well, okay. It de again, it depends on how you define teacher. Well, but I, I, nobody, you in did person. not have an, yeah, no in-person teacher. You didn't go right. to school for it. You taught yourself using, right. uh, whatever online teachers or yeah, yeah. books and, and stuff. Uh, so, so how did you go about learning? You, you first figured out that you wanted to do software development, right? Um, or yes. software engineering. Well, I want to use the right term because <laughs> they're all, yeah, software development, coding, whatever. Um, let's act, okay, I want to answer that, but let me back up for just a second because I, okay. I do want to talk a little bit about what is good about teachers. I feel like we've been a little bit towards the negative side of... Well, know. okay. I, I have a lot to say about how good teachers are and how important it is. Keep talking. Okay. Maybe we'll hold off on the self-teaching questions for a minute. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I, yeah. Well, it's hard to answer without a little more context around what the pros okay. and cons okay. of teachers are. Okay. Here's what can be amazing about a teacher. I remember when I was, uh, I was learning classical guitar to audition for the music program at UCF. Uh, and I, I was self-taught in every sense of the word. I did not have a guitar teacher or a music teacher of any kind. I had never been to school for music at all. I was going to try to pass this audition purely on my own. And so I had bought a classic guitar and I'm, you know, practicing, practicing, practicing. And I, I get to the audition and I did okay. You know, I, I played the pieces and, and did what I needed to do. But immediately the guitar professor who's there, I mean, I, I kind of get finished with the inner or the, the audition. And he says, you, you play like a whisper. I can barely hear you. You're like a little, little mouse playing guitar. It was mocking me. <laughs> Not in a mean way, but it, it hurt a little. Um, but I had played electric guitar up to that point, And on an electric guitar, the idea of volume is just not relevant to you. Right? Like you, yeah. you put your finger down, you pluck the string with the pick and then how loud it is, is up to what the volume is set to on your guitar and the amp right. and all yeah. that stuff. Like you don't think about that. You're never thinking, oh, I got to get this to come out louder. It's gotta be louder. But that is how classical guitar works. Most of the time, classical guitars don't play with amplification. Maybe they should, but that's a different question. You know, you'll go to a classical guitar concert in this big concert hall and you'll see this person way up there on the stage and that's it. There's no amplification. They are playing as loud as they can, trying to get this sound to come out of the instrument because that's just how they do it. And I just didn't, like, that didn't even occur to me. And so I show up for this audition and, like, I have utterly failed or, like, not even recognized this fundamentally important thing to the instrument that somebody who was experienced recognized instantly. It's like, you right. need to fix that. This is a huge problem. And that was just this massive blind spot. And it was actually really hard for me to develop. I mean, you, I needed a different guitar. I mean, higher action, the way you play the instrument is different when you're trying to get a lot of volume out of it. And it was, it was hard to adapt. Um, anyway, the massive advantage of a teacher in that scenario was that they can point out stuff that you can't see. And 
there is a lot of value in that. It would have saved me a lot of agony if I had had a teacher even just say, I could just play it for five minutes and they go, okay, here's some stuff you got to work on. Your volume is non-existent. You have to learn how to play loudly. I completely agree. Um, th there were things, that, as soon as I got my job, um, the, the past four years before that, I was completely by myself. I mean, totally. I had no art friends, never seen another artist ever. And all of a sudden I get a job and I'm surrounded by a couple other artists. Yeah. Um, and immediately some of the things being seen by the other artists, he's like, uh, don't do it like that. <laughs> um, like, uh, it, just, is there anything no. specific you can think of or? Uh, yeah, he's like, you know, the, the sizes of things actually matter. Um, <laughs> so, you know, make yeah. sure you draw them, you know, correctly. I, I don't know. I, I had just drawn things just totally out of scale. It made no sense. Um, part of it was yeah. just, I was so nervous, but, um, you know, he just, he noticed these things, these things that I guess I was just, I had huge blind spots too, and right. he was immediately able to point them out. Um, and yeah, it hurts, but it, you know, I couldn't get that by myself. Um, right. at least it would have taken me a lot longer to get there. So yes, absolutely. There are positives to, yeah. to just having an expert review something that you've done. Right. Um, yeah. And getting, okay. I, I want to get towards how I taught myself to learn programming and same for you with being an artist, but one of the biggest things you get, and this isn't, we usually talk about I don't know, teacher is a big word, right? It encompasses a lot of things. Usually a teacher is in a school. That's where the teachers are. And if you want a teacher, you oftentimes mean going going to school for something, right? Like if you, if you want right. to be an artist and you're going to go to school for it, then you, you know, go to college and go through four years of that. Um, there are a couple things that you get. Like despite the the major limitations of, of teachers, there are a few really important things you get there. One of them is an environment where you are for better or worse. I mean, there are such things as terrible classes that you shouldn't be taking. There's problems there, but you are around a bunch of other people who are also learning. You are dedicating a huge part of your time, your life to being there and, and learning stuff like just being put in that place is hugely beneficial to you being able to learn something, just being in that environment. Uh, the idea of, program you know, if, if when you want to go to school you pick a major and then you go do it and once you start you know you have a couple of electives here and there but for the most part you're just on this track and you do what you're given to do you know week to week assignments you take this course you take that course like you don't really have to make any real decisions about how or what you need to learn you do one course after the other and that's what you do somebody is handing you this entire path from start to finish um so when you go to teach yourself, those things are gone. You, the environment is not there unless you try to create one. And then I think the biggest thing for so many people when they're thinking about, okay, I'm considering teaching myself is what do you do? I mean, you have to design a program, so to speak, for yourself. Right? Like, I mean, yeah, I assume it's the same for you as an artist, right? Yeah, I mean, if we want to jump into the teaching yourself stuff, yeah. Yeah, okay, um, yeah, let's let's do it. All right, well, I'm just going to start in full. Um, yeah, yeah. At the beginning, because well, I, I hope that... 
what R- real quick background just because i don't know if we've mentioned this um i went to school for music but i don't have a career in it i'm a self-taught uh software developer that has been my career for quite a while i started from basically zero taught myself to do that you uh did some schooling and you you said you have an aa right yeah um, but not in a, anything relevant and then you taught yourself to be an artist and yes. you now have a a job yeah and so i spent yeah it's not like four years learning right. art and then i got a job and that's my career now right so yeah just briefly yeah, yeah. one day i was bored i decided i wanted to learn a little bit more about art because i was getting tired of music um or getting tired of failing at music <laughs> different episode uh, yeah, another yeah. time anyway i decided to order this book and it's called imaginative realism by james gurney it's it's important the name james gurney is important because i'm going to talk about him later um i start flipping through the book and i realize that is what i want to do everything that's in the book that's what i've always wanted to be able to do with my art um do this realism style whatever it, it doesn't matter that much but in the book, he talks about all of these different ways that you can learn how to do these things. I had no idea what he was talking about. I didn't recognize any of the words in it. I didn't understand what was going on. I just knew that that's what I want to do that. That yeah. looks really cool. Um, so every time I'm reading a page and he there's a term that I don't recognize, I look it up. And I just start obsessing over it because it's really, really interesting to me. Um, and then at some point, I decide, you know what, I'm just going to do this. Uh, I'm going to be an artist. Um, and that was a big decision. And I can yeah. remember specifically the day that I decided I'm going to do that. Um, and I think that's an important step that you need to take if you're going to do something. Right. Um, anyway, so I, in the book, he, he references a lot of other art instruction books. And so I would start getting I would start collecting all of these books and going through them. I realized very quickly that going through uh, 30 books at a time is not possible. Uh, And so I whittled that down to maybe three or four books, and I would start going through those. And then I realized just reading them, you could not understand the concepts that way. So you actually had to put them into practice. Um, So I would start putting them into practice. But then even, even then, I had no way of proving that I was right on anything. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to observe myself doing these things. I'm trying to be my teacher and the student, um, but there's really no way for me to prove that I'm right. Um, so my learning really started when I got my first commission. I got my first little job and one of my friends hired me uh, to do two paintings. So that that's when I think my learning really started being put to the test. Um, And I think your way of learning is very similar to this. Uh, I think you mentioned at one point. Anyway, so I get commissioned to do these two paintings and I start trying to utilize all of those concepts that I've I've been learning about and reading about. And of course it's extremely difficult and I have no idea what I'm doing, but I'm sure I learned something from them. You start putting yourself to the test and then you can stand back, look at that and realize um, in this real world, uh, problem, this is what I was able to come up with. And and then you're able to see it a little bit more clearly. Um, and then I get commissioned again to do two more paintings. And I, I do the same thing. And now I'm taking all of the, uh, the lessons I learned from the first set um, and applying them to this set. And was uh, with... Sorry, uh, was the difference there that 
I mean, you're, you're saying that that was a big part of what helps you know if something was good or not. Was it just that you had to do something very specific that was, you could kind of evaluate, you know, does this fit the bill for what this person wants? What made that different for you versus going through a well, book and saying, do a practice sketch or something? Well, doing practice stuff, it just kind of piles up and you have so much of it. Um, it's hard to judge exactly what it's for. So when you have a, a real world job, something that's outside of you, like you're actually delivering this thing yeah. um, to this this person, you're able to see it as if it's a real product and you're able to view it much more objectively, uh, just like you would view any other piece of art. I mean, yeah, there, there's always some bias to it, but say, say you've written songs all your life and you keep them on your computer and you listen to them. It's really hard to look at them objectively until you, you release them and they're out in public and they're like this, this actual real thing that you can then uh, experience just like everyone else is experiencing. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, 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 absolutely. And I have it just, some it, stuff I want to say about that, but keep going. Yeah, it, it's like this stage and, and nothing has been on the stage yet. And then all of a sudden I placed these two paintings on the stage right. and now I'm standing back with everyone else looking at them. That immediately puts you into this uh, yeah. observer mode. Um, but anyway, so I go to these next two paintings. I get that job. Um, it, same thing. I'm continuing my coursework and then trying to apply all of that knowledge to the real world problem, with, which is these two paintings that I'm working on. And, and that kind of continued. I, I kept getting these these little projects and, and I would try, I, I would go all out, spend all of my time, my time trying to solve the problems that those paintings uh, created. Um, every single time I got a new job, that was what I was doing. And they, they would take me forever. I would spend a very long time on them. Uh, one of them took me um, at least a year to do. And it was not from <laughs> procrastinating. It was from yeah. just trying to solve these problems. Um, and there's a lot of them that just kept popping up. But I, I think that having this external source um, added to the mix uh, that that really kicked up the the learning for me or, or made it easier for me to like, I don't know, be, be aware of where I was going. Um, yeah. Well, okay. So I, did that I'm, make sense? Yeah, yeah, it did. It did. Okay. I, okay. I'm extremely happy you brought that up because it, when I think about my experience of learning to develop software, uh, I've heard, I've heard people say this, uh, you know, there's some people who can speak like 12 foreign languages fluently, right? right. Uh, I can barely speak English fluently. Yeah. And I have gone to school. I, I did two semesters of Spanish in college. And my Spanish is horrifying. Like I just, I didn't learn any. I might be able to read a word here and there. I mean, it's, it's, it went from zero to still zero. I didn't, I didn't learn any of it in any effective measure at all. I, I, I took Spanish and German and I can't. I, mean, I also took nine. German. I can say nine. Yeah, that's about where <laughs> yeah. I'm at too. It's it's horrifyingly bad. And if you if you listen to somebody who can speak 
12 different languages and say, oh, how do you learn a foreign language? I mean, I've, I failed at just learning Spanish and I actually tried pretty hard. I mean, I did all the exercises in the books. I did the little online portal thingy. I spent some of my time trying to translate, you know, Harry Potter and Spanish and stuff. I mean, I, I really wanted to learn it and I failed miserably. And what these people say, if you want to learn a language, is that you should start speaking it immediately. Just start. Find somebody who will talk to you, pay them if you have to, and just every word you say is in that language. And you're like, uh, I don't, how could I speak a language that I don't know? And like, no, 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 you just try. Think about being a two-year-old learning English. You know, that's how they learn it. And they learn it really fast because they just start trying to speak it and they're immediately wrong. That's okay. You just, you keep trying to speak it and you constantly like readjust and start learning what is correct and what isn't. And that's how you do it. Uh, and that is one of my biggest complaints. I won't even call it a complaint. I think it is a serious fundamental failure of formal education is that very often we don't actually teach something the way it ought to be taught. We aren't teaching Spanish the way people learn to speak Spanish. We're teaching it in a way that it can be graded. We want it in a format where it is 30 people in a classroom who are taking tests and doing assignments that get a grade so that we can stamp a grade on that person at the end of the class. How well that works for them learning Spanish. I'm not saying it's never evaluated, but it's not evaluated very hard. We have not managed to break outside of that format, even though it's demonstrably wrong. Right. I, I know that all of those people in my German classes and my Spanish classes yeah. also cannot speak Spanish right. or German. It didn't work. We didn't yeah. learn any. That's a problem. Okay, without getting too far into all the problems with our assumptions about education, um, when I wanted to learn to code, you know, it, specifically I wanted to learn how to, this was, this was right when the iPhone had come out, I was looking for a career and I thought, I'm going to get into building programs for the iPhone. Brand new platform, I think there'll be opportunities there. And I was right, there were. Uh, and the way I did that was to say, well, if I'm going to get a job building apps for an iPhone, I'm not, I'm not going to have a degree. I'm not planning on having a degree. And if I had gone to a school to get a degree, it would not have been in anything extremely relevant to iPhone development. So I'm like, all right, what I need to do is I need to have some apps that I can show people to prove that I can do this thing that I'm telling them they should pay me to do. Right. Like I need a portfolio right. of programs that I've written. Uh, and so I went, okay, um, I got to figure out how to write a program. So I'll start with, you know, hello world. How do I get something to show up on an iPhone? And then from there, all right, how do I draw a circle? How do I get text? How do I make a button? How do I make it do stuff? Um, in a sense, it was like, okay, how do I speak iPhone? How do I make stuff happen on this thing? I did not start with, okay, what's the history of computing? Who invented the bit and blah, blah, blah. Right. And like, right. That's not what, how I what did What are that. the 10 fundamental rules of iPhone development? Yeah. 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 What's the history? What did Steve Jobs do? And like, none of that stuff mattered. And even less obvious than that, I mean, a, a course in you know, the fundamentals of computing, how do memory registers work? How does a CPU work? Like, it's not that that stuff is bad information, but it did not help me get to where I needed to go. 
and okay, you can make the argument, well, every programmer ought to know all these basic fundamentals. And okay, you might have a point there, but they also need to know how to do the thing they want to learn how to do and completely ignoring that in favor of a bunch of only tangentially relevant things is objectively stupid. So <laughs> the way I approach coding was, or trying to learn how to do this thing was I would just start trying to build something. And it didn't matter if it was a million times too ambitious. If I said, okay, I want to build this app that's 3D rendered and uses all this stuff, I would just start and then almost immediately I would hit a wall. Like, I don't know how this works. I keep seeing this concept of an object in a class and I don't know what that means. And I'm just stuck on this and I know that I need to know it. And then I would think, okay, it's time to go find some resource, some course, book, whatever it is that can explain this concept that I know I need to know and I can't seem to get my head around. So I, um, actually somebody asked me this question recently and I had to like think back through what I actually did, but I watched a course from Stanford from this guy, I forget the professor's name, but he was super good. Um, and he goes through basic Objective-C development. It was Objective-C at the time, now it's Swift, but you know, he started from the beginning and here's how the language works and here's this idea of this and that. And then even inside of that course, I got to some point where I got stuck, you know, maybe the object thing was new. I'm like, okay, I gotta go find something more fundamental to explain this concept to me. So I would go back, I would stop this course when I got stuck or it stopped being useful, go somewhere else, find a resource and then watch that. Um, and in a sense, the idea of taking courses, I hate it in so many ways. I do, because the yeah. idea that you're going to go become a programmer by taking one course and then another course and another course doesn't make any sense. It just, it doesn't make sense. Right. But that information is very valuable to the right person at the right time. So if I'm trying to do something, I need to learn how this concept works and I know why I need to learn it. I have a, a serious need for it. You know, I'm not just having someone tell me, you need to learn this, it'll be useful one day in the far future. Like, I know right. I need it. I need it right now for a project I'm trying to make it further on. So here's a course that explains it. Then I am soaking up everything in that course. Like, it's perfect. It's exactly what I want. I'm hyper motivated to learn all of this stuff because it fits in with something that I'm trying to accomplish. Yes, exactly. It. Yes. And that's the only way I feel like I really learn stuff is that yes, if it satisfies the the problem I currently have in front of me, that that's the only way it really sticks with me. Yeah. Um, because just reading like general, um, informative, you know, art knowledge, it like like it's yeah, me. it's great, super interesting, and then I just forget all right. about it because it doesn't matter. It doesn't apply to me right then. Yeah, it's it's devoid of context. It's meaningless. It's just floating yes. in the ether of your brain with you not being able to apply it. I remember because I was on an engineering track for a while. I remember taking differential equations, which was a course, and I remember getting an A in it. I did very well, and now. If you put a gun to my head and said, what is a differential equation? I couldn't answer it. I don't what? even know what that is. Okay. But I took a whole course on it and I got an A. 
because it was it didn't mean anything. I never I never right. once used a differential equation for anything. And I guarantee you, if I had some project that I was working on that I was interested in or motivated to do in whatever sense, and I needed to use differential equations for it, I would learn 10 times more than I ever did in that class because I'd be motivated and interested and I would remember what they were after the fact. Like that would have completely changed my relationship with this idea of differential equations. Right. So well, backing up, you said that in order to start learning uh, software engineering, you, you would just start building something, right? But when you say you would just start building something, I'm sure you had something specific in mind, right? You weren't just trying to make something cool, right? Well, because... yeah, yeah. Um, I... I mean, I, one of the first things I built was a game. No, it wasn't. Actually, now that I think about it, uh, it was a music sequencer, a, a step sequencer. I, you have to remember at the time, there wasn't very much on the app store. It was still pretty new. Uh, and I, I actually worked with dad on this because he had some coding experience and I had music experience. Um, so that was the first app that I built. I had this idea of, oh, it would be really cool to have a step sequencer on the app store. You know, you press a button and like as the little, you know, play meter sweeps by, it plays a sound according to which buttons you've lit up and everything. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you can just Google step sequencer and it'll show up. Um, but I had thought that's a really cool idea. I want to build that. So you had a very specific thing in mind. You, you didn't just start off trying to accomplish some vague, weird thing. Right. You had... You had a specific goal, a, a music sequencer. Right. But yeah. but even then, you know, the, the idea was, okay, this is the thing that I want to do. And it wasn't the only thing I wanted to do. I knew that I needed a portfolio. I had thought, okay, I want to build a game. And I had some ideas on what that game ought to look like. And I had to, you know, pare it down into something that was... I mean, at first, I didn't really know what the scale should be. Like, how complicated can one person make, you know, for a game? Uh, and as I learned more, I was able to kind of move that goalpost down into something that made more sense but i had a couple things that i wanted to build like this step sequencer uh or, or this game and i go to start and i go i don't actually even know how to make a program go from my computer to the phone so the first thing i'm going to do is hello world program how do i just get xcode to put something on the phone and that was a learning experience in and of itself and once right. i got that figured out it's like okay what's the next thing um well if I'm going to make a game, I got to be able to put a picture on the screen. So how do I do that? And then how do I make something move? And you start learning all kinds of things like, oh, there's game engines and frameworks and different ways of doing it. And let me go research those and figure out what makes the most sense and what's a shader and all that stuff. So you start having this goal in mind and you start to try to make it. You immediately uncover all of these things that, oh, I have to go learn about this. And then you go learn so about that. I think, it, say, if you enrolled in college, the the professor gives you an an exact uh, timeline of when things are due. It, it gives you a, a program to follow. Yeah. When you're teaching yourself and you're on your own and there's just there's no one telling you what to do, choosing those those things, those projects, mm -hmm. um, like building a music sequencer, whatever, it it gives you that program, and then you're just following it. Um, yeah. so it, as you're teaching yourself, the teacher version of you chooses that thing, chooses that project to go follow. And then the student version of you 
goes and tries to solve all of those problems. Yeah, I think that's a good um, way to put it. Yeah. Yeah, I, and the I think, teacher version of you just tries to make sure you're staying on track to get to that end goal. Yeah, um, I I think um, the reason why I avoided answering that question until we talked about more of education was that I think that's one of the biggest problems you face if you want to be self-taught is just that feeling of what do I even do? Uh, it just feels like this, the biggest blank page you've ever seen. Right. Um, and that's something you don't have to deal with at school other than just, okay, which major do I do? And that's what you do. Uh, so having an approach to that is, that's what it ought to look like, in my opinion. You know, if, if you're teaching yourself, you're not getting a degree, you know, so that's out. Uh, the only other thing is basically a portfolio work that you've done that you can go show to people. That's what you're after. And I really can't think of anything else that you're pursuing. I mean, I, I, I don't know if you're playing a sport and you get really good at a sport, you could demonstrate that to people. The the portfolio was exactly what I did. Right. Um, a after a couple years and, and I was kind of aimless, I was kind of just going for this vague idea of uh, doing like realist type art. Um, I, I knew that there, there was some things that I absolutely had to learn, but I wasn't quite sure of the career. Mm -hmm. um, my friend kind of told me, you know, hey, give me a portfolio and maybe I can give you a job in this industry, um, the themed entertainment industry, which is like right. a Imagineering, Universal Creative, uh, that kind of stuff. Anyway, yeah. um, so once he, he said that, I was like, oh, that is a perfect <laughs> opportunity for me to then get, you know, start a career. So th then I had a specific goal and that's when I started building, building my portfolio specifically tailored to that industry. Right. Um, it, and I had, you know, eight to 10 pieces or empty slots I needed to fill. And every, uh, every commission was then geared towards filling those spots. And if I didn't get a commission for it, I just did it myself. Um, and, and that was my, my big mm -hmm my big goal. So it was all about building that portfolio and then all the little problem solving that had to go into each and every single um, piece out of those 10 yeah. or eight to 10. I think maybe the biggest mistake that people make when they, they set out to, oh, I'm going to teach myself how to do something, music, let's say just say coding, right? So many times people will think, all right, I'm going to teach myself how to code. So I found this course and I'm going to go do that course. You know, that's where right. I'll start. Maybe after I'm done with, you know, how to program in Python 1, I'll take how to program in Python 2. And that's not the way to do it. You're thinking that way because that's what a school is like. And schools can be good for certain reasons, but the fact that they do a bunch of courses one after another, that's not why they're good. That's one of the biggest problems with a school. Uh, I think... I looked this up before we we got on. Uh, so they call them MOOCs, the massive online open courses. Basically, not that okay. long ago, or oh, maybe it wasn't that long ago, 10 years ago or something, there was this big movement of, hey, the internet, it's new. Let's start putting courses online so people can take them. And then it's not just rich people who can afford to go to Harvard that can be smart and know how to do stuff. The whole world can do it. You know, everyone will 
We'll live in this utopia of everyone having access to education. And you can do it. You can go on edX and you know look at all these different courses on pretty much anything you can think of. Philosophy, history, physics, math, whatever. There's Coursera. There's a million of them. <laughs> and the dropout rate of the people who start a course and the people who finish is like almost 100%. It's like 97, 98% of people don't finish the course. And the reason is that it's pointless. There's no value in just taking a course of stuff that you're going to forget later. That's not how you approach learning how to do something. If that course is exactly what you need for building your thing or developing your skill, that will be an incredible experience for you and you will love every bit of it. Or maybe not every bit, you'll love the parts that, that matter. But just taking courses one after the other, just for anyone, think back to high school, college, these courses you took that you spent hours and hours and hours on, and unless that's something that you still use, you've probably forgotten about all of it. I know that I have. I took Calculus 1, Calculus 2, and Calculus 3, and I don't know how to do a calculus problem. Like, I know that it has something to do with derivatives and integrals, and that's about it. Seriously. I spent so many hundreds of hours of my time on that, and I don't remember it. Because just taking courses in the void is not the way to do it. You need to have something that you're after. Build things, create things, play music, play songs, whatever it is, write songs. And then as you hit these things that you suddenly realize you need, then go find a course on that or a book and go learn that information. Right. The, the reason for the course needs to come before the course. Yes, exactly. A course yeah. fills a need. And if there's no need, there's no need for the course. Pretty much. There, there's no need for your brain to remember it at all. Right. Right. It's meaningless. Um. Okay. I have, I have a big... I want to run this by you because I, I'm curious to see what you think. Okay. But something like software engineering it's a pretty new thing right mm -hmm. all right something like illustration though goes very far back right so there's a lot of tradition that's included in in being a good illustrator of course it depends on what type of illustrator you are right. and what kind of artist um but the for the stuff that i want to do it relies a lot on these long traditions that have been around for a very long time. All right, so we started talking about this a while ago, but with pirates, right? <laughs> um, okay, when you think of pirates, you mostly think of what, like uh, Johnny Depp and the Pirates of the Caribbean? Yeah, and like right. pirate ships and everything. Yeah, and they got the three-pointed hat, and they're dressed peg, all cool. Yeah, yeah. Peg leg, hooks, hook for a hand, pointy yeah, three-point hat. Yeah, and the parrot. Yeah. So most of what you know of pirates comes from this guy named Howard Pyle. Um, he's an illustrator that was in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, he created this whole look for, for pirates. Not much was known then about what they actually looked like or anything really so he created this whole look um and it's still around today that's how we yeah. structured pirates of the caribbean around them uh 
the illustrations he did. Anyway, I only bring that up because um, he was incredibly influential at the time and still is. Um, he's known as the father of American illustration. Super big deal. Anyway, wow. um, it, you, if you haven't heard his name, Howard Pyle, you've for sure seen some of his illustrations. Okay. Um, doesn't matter that much to anyone other than illustrators. But anyway, he started a school um, called the Brandywine School or the Brandywine Tradition. Uh, and he taught a number of students, but one of the more important ones he taught was N.C. Wyeth. Okay. Any illustrator knows who N.C. Wyeth is. N.C. Wyeth had a son named Andrew Wyeth, also extremely successful and influential. Yeah. All right. Another student of Howard Pyle, the, the pirate guy, uh, was Harvey Dunn, a guy named Hardy, Harvey Dunn, super successful, uh, very influential. Harvey Dunn taught this guy named Dean Cornwell. Dean Cornwell is one of my favorite illustrators of all time. I, I have a point to all of this, I promise. No, no, go ahead. Um, okay, Dean Cornwell then taught this guy named Med Schaefer. Med Schaefer, also extremely successful, also one of my favorite illustrators. Med Schaefer was really good friends with Norman Rockwell. Okay. Everyone knows who Norman Rockwell is. I know that name, yeah. Right. At least if you live in America, yeah. uh, you know who Norman Rockwell is. Norman Rockwell then goes on to create this, uh, this correspondence course called the Famous Artist Course. And this was in the 50s. And he did it with a couple other uh, illustrators of the time. And... Uh, that was kind of the end of that education string, the like big thread genealogy of, of illustrators and stuff. Yeah. Okay. So I'll stop there for a second and then I'll go back. <laughs> I, I promise there's a, a point to this, or at least it better be a payoff here. Right. Go, go right. ahead. All right. All right. Okay. So the, you know the gladiator thing um, where the crowd uh, screams and chants it and they, they give the thumbs up or the thumbs down? Yeah. Right, you've, yeah, you've heard like of Gladiator. This. I mean, yeah. yeah, I mean, in the movie Gladiator, they give the thumbs up, or the yes. thumbs down. Yes. All right. Um, that was not really known at all until one illustrator, a French illustrator, did this painting um, of this gladiator, and the whole crowd is is all giving the thumbs down to kill this other opponent. Um, this painting called caused this huge uproar, um, and all these this. It was this big historical, uh, I don't know, controversial thing. And they were arguing over whether it was uh, historically accurate or it wasn't. They were giving arguments for it being accurate and for it not being accurate. Anyway, the only, bring, the only reason I bring that up is because he was extremely influential at the time. All right, we're almost done here. Um, so the illustrator is called uh, Jean-Leon Jerome. I, I think I got his name right. Anyway. He he starts a school, and he teaches this guy named um, oh man uh, George Bridgman. Anyway, I'm I'm almost done. George Bridgman uh, becomes one of the biggest uh, authorities on figure drawing. So if you're an illustrator, you know who George Bridgman is. Another student of John Leon Jerome was um, Robert Beverly Hale, I think, and and he also became. Are you Just remembering as, all these or are you reading off yes, of a screen? Yeah, no, I'm remembering wow. all of them. Uh, because I, I knew all of them before I realized they were all connected. But anyway, um, and if there's any history buffs, they're going to point out 
some problems that I have probably, but I think I'm being pretty accurate. You're doing fine. Anyway, under George Bridgman, okay, a a student of Jean-Léon Jerome, which I think I'm getting his name right. Anyway, under George Bridgman um, is a guy named Andrew Loomis. Andrew Loomis, one of the biggest illustrators in the 50s um, and for his instruction books, which I've been going through over the last few months and the last few oh, years. So are He's... you at the end of this genealogy? Hold on, hold on. Of yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm getting there. So Andrew Loomis wrote these uh, amazing, incredible uh, educational art books, which if you're getting into art, check out Andrew Loomis. He's got some great books. Anyway, another student of George Bridgman wasn't just Andrew Loomis, is also Norman Rockwell, right? And so then Norman Rockwell goes on to create this, this amazing uh, famous artist course in the 50s. And it, it, it wasn't a school, it was a correspondence course. And I, I think that's kind of important because it's a little bit different. And it's heading more into the, the modern age where you're not able to teach one-on-one quite as much. It's more right. broad. But anyway, it, it was a, a set of three ring binders and I have all three of them. And that was largely my education going through those three books. But I bring all of this up, um, well, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that book I got from James Gurney, Imaginative Realism. Uh, James Gurney is extremely influenced by um, all of those illustrators, the Brandywine tradition and uh, Jean-Léon Jerome's uh, whole course and everything um so from both of those two worlds comes this illustrator james gurney and i have my education has mostly come from him and from the famous artist course from norman rockwell and those illustrators um and i think it's really interesting because all of these guys that i didn't know were connected are connected through this series of of teaching uh, they were all teachers to the next one and to the yes. next one. And they all become these extremely successful, influential, big, powerful illustrators. And it's like that across the board. They're all connected through these teachings. And, and nowadays, after the Famous Artist Course, and of course, this is very heavily opinionated by me. Uh, and maybe other people disagree, but... Hey, this is our show. You view, can be as opinionated as you want. Right. And you're still following, right? I think so. I mean, I don't okay. know any of the names, but... Well, what I'm saying is, it, once the uh, Famous Artist Course came out, there hasn't been very many illustrators that are at that same level of quality that came before them, it, in my opinion. Yes, there are some incredible illustrators nowadays, um, and James Gurney is absolutely one of them, in my opinion. And there's a couple others, um, and there's a lot of great artists out there, but in terms of this type of art, it doesn't exist anymore. It is gone. Um, mm. The the teachings just aren't, and as they're just not being taught like they used to be. So I'm wondering if you think that there are things that must be taught that cannot be learned through, say, a textbook. I guess I have a lot of questions and a lot of thoughts on this. I probably can't get to them all. But I'm wondering if you think that there are intangible things that can never be recovered. Um, So I I can never meet Jean-Léon Jerome and I can never meet Howard Pyle or any of these guys that came before. Um, And there are books on them. Uh, There are books by students of theirs writing about their teachings. But I, I can't be taught by them. So is it possible 
for me to obtain that same knowledge that they would have passed down, I guess, is my question. What are okay. your thoughts on that? <laughs> okay. <laughs> you finally summited. Now, what's your point? Um, <laughs> I try, yeah, I don't know. So, okay. No, that was worth it because that's an extremely important thing to bring up. Um, I think it... Part of that question, again, gets at what we started with, which is that the idea of a teacher is extremely broad. And it sounds like what you're talking about, you know, somebody who had one of these people, I can't remember a single one of them, <laughs> as their teacher, it, it was not them standing up in front of a group of 50 people and lecturing. That's not what that sounds like to me. It sounds like it is much more of a mentorship one-on-one -on -one type of relationship. I mean, is that a fair assumption? Well, yeah, from reading about some of these, I mean, of course, they're all different. It's very varied, um, and it's yeah. across a long period of time. But yeah, a, a lot of them would um, spend a lot of time with their students and, and get them involved with their actual business. Um, so say like Jean-Léon Jerome, I think, would, um, would take his students... Uh, after school is done and bring him bring them back to his studio and get them set up with a whole career and work with them on on how to do all of that yeah so when, it wasn't just like lecturing for 30 right. minutes or an hour and a half and then leaving them yeah when i went to college for music uh the way the music program works and it's a little dependent on school but uh i had to take a bunch of courses and like i said they were largely useless and some were okay uh, but part of the way you handle being a performing musician is that I had the guitar professor and I studied directly under him. And for all four years, you, you take master classes with this guy. So it's, it's you and your other peers. And you're in this class with this person for all four years, you know, once a week. And then, oh, so you had the same professor for four years. Yeah. Yeah. All the, all the way through. And okay. I had a, an hour, although sometimes it was closer to two hours, of private lesson with him every single week for four years. You are very much studying directly underneath somebody who is there one-on-one -on -one working with you on exactly what you're doing. Uh, and not to mention the masterclass type of format where you're also in a, more of a group setting. But I mean, I don't know how many hours that adds up to, but it's a lot You know, every week an hour yeah. or two with this guy uh now unfortunately i didn't click super well with my guitar professor for whatever reason and i don't really want to get into that but even so with not really being the ideal teacher student pairing in that situation it was still vastly different than what it was like to sit in a classroom and listen to a lecture you know i'm directly underneath somebody and like you said, there's for playing a guitar and the same for art. There are so many tiny, subtle little things that you don't get from a lecture. You, like I said, a lot of it you are discovering on your own. And part of it is you observing somebody else. And I mean, me working on a piece, you know, I get in there, I play it poorly. And he goes, ah, this is good. This is bad, whatever. And then I go, can you play it? And he goes, yeah, of course. And he plays it. I'm like, wait, 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 hold on. Show me this part again. 
play those two notes back and forth. Okay, do it again. Okay, now back up for a, and like he'll sit there and and move through at whatever pace I need while I sit there like my eyes are four inches away from his fingers trying to figure out exactly how he's doing some very subtle little thing. Like how exactly are you positioning your hand so that you're able to do that so fluidly without, you know, just moving a billionth of a millimeter to touch the next string and causing it to mute itself. Like there's this tiny stuff that you can't get at in any other way, I don't think. So right. it, I don't know how well that answers your question. I guess the answer is yes. I think that there are certain things that don't work well. I won't say they don't work well teaching yourself, but there is a huge value in that. And as I said, if you, you have to have the right mentality. You have to realize that you are looking for these little things, these subtle, tiny bits of technique and information and whatever that you're you're having to figure it out but having somebody there if you have the right mindset can be massively valuable and i think that there are things that are kind of lost if you don't have that or can be yeah and i agree and i was at first i was thinking of, of teachers as just this like general you know person yeah. lecturing in a high school class or whatever and it, it's just like do you need teachers hell no i don't care i'll just learn on my own like i, I don't need that but then yeah. i start thinking about you know well what if what if the teacher is the leading well for me you know what if he is the top illustrator what if he's the best that's ever been what if that's my teacher do i need him in order to be really good um i would certainly like to be involved <laughs> in that class yes yeah. um so I started thinking about teachers being not just this general thing. They are just as unique as any any person mm -hmm. ever. So are they necessary? I don't know. It, it depends on a lot of things. But a good teacher could be the secret to a lot of things. Yes. Um, and this is, again, a... Part of it is a complaint about formal education. Okay, if, if you kind of stick with the, the a teacher is somebody who explains something definition part of it for a second. Right. Uh, one of the massive, massive advantages you have if you are being self-taught is that if you, if you find a course on Coursera on something that you need to learn, and you open it up and you realize that the teacher sucks, you don't have to stick around for more than 30 seconds. You can just peace out. Like, right. this person sucks. I'm gonna find somebody who doesn't suck. Right, even though it's knowledge, even though it's like technically knowledge, it's a waste of time for you as a person. Yeah. I, there, this is a different rant for a different day, <laughs> but <laughs> there are, there is a massive, massive spectrum of how good people are at explaining things even in the context of an ivy league school you can go find courses from harvard and yale and all those types and if you watch a handful of them you will realize very quickly that some of those professors in terms of them explaining concepts some of them are fantastic they are just extremely talented and some of them are horrible they're just bad in every sense of the word. It's as if they're just complete amateurs. They've never tried to explain something before. Right. Or 
they just suck. I don't know how else to put it. Right. Yeah. So so stop thinking that just because they're called professors or right. whatever that they they have this sort of like magical they're, knowledge. Yes, they are hired because they are uh, prestigious experts in their field, not yeah. because they're good at teaching. If they're good at teaching, it's usually incidental. They you know, are really brilliant in their field. And they're also really brilliant when it comes to teaching and they recognize what's good and what isn't, and they work on it and get better. And they're, they end up being a really good teacher. And by that, I mean, explainer of things, but some of them right. are awful. And when you're in school, like I said, even though there were great things about working with the guitar professor, we, we really didn't work that well. He didn't quite work with me the way I wanted him to. And, and it wasn't great. And I had to take, I don't know if I should even mention music appreciation. It. Okay. Just do it. <laughs> I'll try to keep this from getting out of control. I took a course called music appreciation. It was an elective, but you have to take electives and there weren't very many to choose from. So I don't know how elective it really was, but I took this course and it was appreciation of pop music from the past several decades. So the music that everyone likes, talking about Led Zeppelin and the Beatles and all those types. And the course is in an auditorium with three to 400 people. And it is taught by this guy. And I don't know how else to say this, but he was an asshole. He was... I don't say his name. <laughs> I can't remember his name, but I'd be more than happy to throw him <laughs> under the internet bus because he was horrible. He was... All right. Take he breath. never he never failed at being condescending and disrespectful to everyone there. It didn't matter what your question was, what you needed, anything. He just talked to you like you were a misbehaving two-year-old. He was just a jerk, and I can't I can't stress that enough. But also, his teaching style, and remember, this is music appreciation. This is the music that everyone likes. Like it's universally appealing. That's why it's pop music. His way of making you appreciate it was to stand up in front of this three to 400 people. And he had typed up PowerPoint slides in Microsoft Word, just typed them like, this is the Beatles, this is their release on this album. And he would stand there and read them to you. For an hour and a half, he would read typed up notes on stupid trivia from pop music. Okay, so that I'm gonna end the rant there. Hey, my rant was like, an hour long so yeah but you had more of a point at the end of it i can't even begin to say how many things are wrong with that scenario uh but it is criminal that that is even allowed to happen if if you sat down with anyone and were like look we got a bunch of people and they're all interested in pop music how do we what how what should we do how do we encourage them to explore this interest in popular music you know the music that everyone likes i think anything you came up with anything would have been a million times better than that if you said oh, we're going to put them all in a room and we're going to tell them all to be quiet and we're just going to play a beatles album that'll be one class and then for the next class we're going to play Alice in Chains and then we're going to play whatever. It doesn't matter. Right. Anything, anything 
would have been better than that. And I had no choice. I mean, again, it was an elective, but there wasn't much else I could take. Uh, I had to go through that. I was forced through that. Right. And if, if I was self, if I was trying to accomplish a goal, being self-taught, I would have pieced out of there after 10 seconds. It's right. insane that that happens. And that is a massive failure of formal education, that that kind of thing is even there. And you aren't able to choose. You can't just bounce out of a class when you realize that it's not good. Right. I, I, wish, uh, I wish it didn't work that way. I wish you could teach yourself and then, I mean, I, I guess you can enroll in some classes at colleges and there, yes. and, and, you know, yes. and, and you can do, um, you can they, audit. There's, there's yeah. ways around it, but that's really not the college experience. I did not have a choice at the time. If I had left the class, I would have not had enough electives to graduate. So in a right. practical sense, you don't just get to decide what works for you and what doesn't. But no matter the system, no matter the, the way education works now or whatever, you need to have that self-driving force and, and know where you want to yeah. go. I mean, I, I have to believe it, all of those illustrators that I listed, um, yeah. they, I am sure every single one of them uh, really wanted what they got um, and knew yeah. what they were headed towards. Even if they had the best teacher in the world, it, it right. doesn't matter unless right. they were very self-driven. Yeah. So, I guess... I don't know. Should we try to bring this home? Like, what is the point of all this? What is the point of all this? Okay. The, the original question was, do you need a teacher? I think my answer to that is that I don't want to say everyone is everyone should be self-taught whether you go to school or not is a bit beside the core issue yeah you you're the one steering the ship you need to you need to be the one pushing looking for answers trying to solve the problems trying to get good at whatever it is you're after and I guess it's worth mentioning that not everybody necessarily really wants to be super good at something. You can go to school and get a degree and then go get a job with your degree. Uh, that's, that's valid. And I don't mean to take anything away from somebody who does that. That's a totally fine way to go. And some people I think do thrive in spite of that, but I think that's the core point I, I wanted to get at was that, Teacher is a vague concept. They are not all powerful. They're not. They're not this genius expert that can solve problems for you. You have to be the one to go after whatever it is you want to be after, and you should use teachers whenever possible. I mean, if you're self-taught and you don't go to school, you're still getting books, watching courses online, watching YouTube videos, trying to find the best teachers you can to get information from, and then there are certain times when having somebody in person that you can poke at and ask questions of and assuming they're a good teacher which unfortunately not all of them are but if they're good you can potentially get a lot of value out of that too but a, a lot of it comes down again i've experienced this from the teacher side how good of a student you are 
And by that, I mean how well you are able to have that dialogue, get what you need, tell the teacher what you need. You know, being good at that uh, will determine night and day what you actually even get out of a teacher. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Yes. Anything to add? Should we just kind of leave it there? Nope, I'm good. I think okay. that, yeah, you summed it up well. Okay, cool. All right, well, that's teachers. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, remember, we read all your feedback. Please leave a comment on YouTube. Email us at theoveranalyzerspodcast at gmail.com. We will read that, too. And uh, we may try to try to respond to some questions and, and comments uh, every every month or so. Thanks. Yeah. See you next week. <laughs>